Hello and welcome to the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for today, January 19th, 2023. I'm your reader, Ben Stein, and we'll go ahead and begin uh, with the uh, opening here of the Globe Gazette. Biden to tour California storm damage, U.S. nears debt limit, analysis reveals Greenland warming spike, and Hot Off the Wired podcast. Off this version of Hot Off the Wire, President Joe Biden is set to tour damaged areas of California and be briefed on recovery efforts in the wake of devastating storms that have hit the state in recent weeks. At least 20 people have died and destruction has been reported across 41 of California's 58 counties. The Office of Florida Congressman Greg Stubbe says he sustained several injuries in an accident at his home on Florida's Gulf Coast. The countdown toward a possible U.S. government default is in the offing, and frictions between President Joe Biden and House Republicans are raising alarms about whether the U.S. can sidestep a potential economic crisis. New ice core data shows Greenland is the warmest it's been in more than 1,000 years. In sports, the Heat won big. Memphis kept its streak alive. Nikola Jokic broke a club record. Seton Hall stunned UConn as one of three upsets in college hoops. The Bruins won on the ice, and Steven Stamkos hit a milestone. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has told political leaders at the World Economic Forum meeting in Davos, Switzerland, that supplies of Western weapons must come quicker than Russia's attacks. A prosecutor says the husband of a Massachusetts woman who's been missing since New Year's Day went online to look up ways to dismember and dispose of a body. Authorities say they killed a man who shot and injured a Georgia state trooper as law enforcement officers tried to clear protesters from the site of a planned public safety training center just outside Atlanta. Elon Musk was alternately depicted in a San Francisco courtroom as a liar who callously jeopardized the savings of regular people or a well-intentioned visionary. Those descriptions emerged Wednesday in opening statements at a trial focused on a Tesla buyout that never happened. Microsoft is cutting 10,000 workers, almost 5% of its workforce, as it joins other tech companies in a scaling back of their pandemic-era expansions. Americans cut back on spending in December, the second consecutive month they've done so, underscoring how inflation and the rising cost of using credit cards slowed consumer activity over the crucial holiday shopping season. Growing evidence that high inflation is finally easing shows that the Federal Reserve's sharp interest rate hikes are working as intended, says Loretta Mester, a key Fed policymaker. Edmund's top-rated awards honored six winners for 2023 for best car, SUV, truck, and the electric versions of each. Snoop Dogg, Gloria Estefan, Sade, Jeff Lynn, Glenn Ballard, Ted Riley, and Liz Rose have been chosen to join the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Uh, from here, we will go ahead and move on uh, to the first article from Tom Barton of the Gazette, the Des Moines Bureau. This entitled Scores of Iowans Pack Hearing on Tuition Aid Bill. From Des Moines, for a second time in less than a week, Iowans packed a legislative hearing room Tuesday at the Iowa Capitol to sound off on Governor Kim Reynolds' private school financial assistance proposal, which Republican lawmakers seem intent to fast-track to a floor vote 
after the idea failed previously. More than 100 individuals, roughly split between supporters and opponents, signed up to speak for up to two minutes each during the 90-minute hearing on House Study Bill 1. Hundreds more submitted written comments. Earlier in the day, an Iowa House committee advanced a new chamber rule along party lines with Democrats opposed, allowing the bill and others assigned to a newly formed House Education Reform Committee to bypass review by committees that review spending and tax issues, where the proposal's financial impact would have been assessed. The governor's office estimates the state will spend $107 million in the program's first year. By full implementation in the fourth year, the state would spend $341 million annually, it estimates. House Minority Leader Jennifer Conferst of Windsor Heights and lobbyists for groups that represent educators, administrators, and public school districts decried the move, stating it flies in the face of transparency, good governance, and accountability. Quote, if members of this committee truly believe the policies they move through the Education Reform Committee are what Iowans asked for, what your constituents have asked for, then there would be no problem making sure that a bill that makes significant policy changes and an expenditure of resources goes through the appropriate process, said Melissa Peterson on behalf of the Iowa State Education Association, which represents public school teachers in the state. Margaret Buckton, a lobbyist for Urban Education Network of Iowa and Rural School Advocates of Iowa, said the rule would bypass a time-tested process that allows for more public engagement and deeper analysis. Conference chastised House Republicans, who hold a 64-36 majority, for circumventing fiscal oversight in the interest of expediting Reynolds' top legislative priority. House Speaker Pat Grassley, Republican of New Hartford, contends Republicans are being transparent, choosing to hold a public hearing on the bill. Grassley, too, said he is more than happy to have an open committee debate on the tax and spending implications of the bill. He said he created the committee in large part to review and advance the bill for a vote in the House, where Reynolds's previous school choice proposals stalled each of the past two years, rather than getting it blocked in committee. Quote, we feel that Iowans have an expectation, whether you support it or you don't, that a committee procedure should not be the reason you don't get to see where the legislature stands, Grassley said. House Appropriations Committee Chair Gary Moore, Republican of Bettendorf, said he was fine with the rule change. They're the ones in charge of the agenda, not me, he said of House leaders and I'll defer to whatever their wishes are on that. Reynolds' proposal would create taxpayer-funded educational savings accounts valued at $7,598 in the first year, the amount the state spends per pupil on public K-12 education that families could use for private school tuition and other education expenses. The program would be phased in over three years, prioritizing kindergarten and low-income students in the first two years, In the third year, all K-12 students, including private school students, would be eligible for the funding with no income restrictions. Public schools would lose out on the per-pupil funding for any student who chooses to attend a private school. However, the legislation also provides each school district roughly $1,200 for every student who lives in the district but attends a private school. That funding is devoted whether the private school student is a recent transfer or has always attended private school. Supporters say the funding is needed to give more families an opportunity with state assistance to send their children to the school that best fits their needs. Passing this bill will allow full education freedom for families, providing true customization that allows us to think broader about our education opportunities, 
said Samantha Fett, a former Carlisle School Board member and parent. The number one budget line item is in Iowa is education, Fett said. And what do we have to show for it? Low test scores, underperforming schools, less than the best educated students. School choice is the only way to move away from this one-size-fits-all disaster. She and several other parents urged lawmakers to serve the best interests of students and that the state should be funding the education of children, not institutions. Opponents argue the measure would siphon resources away from public schools to fund the education of a few students at private schools, including those who can afford to attend without the state aid. Students, they argue, would be better served by using such funds to make public schools stronger. Critics, too, note the proposal does not provide an actual choice for students living in rural areas who have few, if any, access points to schools other than their local public schools. According to Iowa Department of Education, there are 40 counties with no private schools, nearly all of them rural counties. There were 33,692 students enrolled in 183 private schools, Iowa, for the 22-23 school year, according to state data. Proponents have said the proposal would expand the market for private schools, meaning new schools could open in those areas. Opponents as well argue the measure would further segregate public schools, allowing private schools to accept taxpayer dollars but reject students for a variety of reasons. My school, Iowa's public schools, accept all students regardless of their abilities, color, religion, language, and any other difference, said Mike Bronick, president of the Iowa State Education Association. Des Moines parent Jaslyn Fitz said her autistic son, who has an individualized education plan and other children like him, will have no choice to attend private school because private schools can't and will choose not to accept him and his specialized needs. Quote, in my mind, vouchers are discriminatory toward disabled children because there is no guarantee that they will be accepted and property supported in private schools, Fitz said. My taxpayer funds should go toward funding public institutions with access to everyone. Dan Zilstra, head of school at Pella Christian Schools, previously served as a public school principal and superintendent at rural public schools in Indiana. Quote, school choice did not decimate my rural public school district, Zilstra said. The vast majority stayed in my school district and we loved it. Enrollment declines happening in rural Iowa are happening because of broad population losses, not because of school choice. To say school choice will kill rural schools is false. To help them, we need to provide flexibility in how to use their existing funds. Our next article from Matthew Razab and Lisa Gruet of the Globe Gazette entitled Women, Woman Pleads Not Guilty to Worth County Vehicular Homicide. A Fort Dodge woman accused of killing her three-year-old son and a 45-year-old man after crossing the center line and causing a head-on collision in Northwood in July has pleaded not guilty. Court records indicate that 24-year-old Maggie Jo Harvey made her plea in Worth County District Court last week. She is facing up to 75 years in prison if convicted on two counts of homicide by vehicle, operating under the influence, and one count of child endangerment, death. All are Class B felonies. According to an Iowa State report, Harvey was driving a 2017 Chrysler Pacifica north of U.S. Highway 65 near Kensett around 10.30 p.m. on July 29th when she crossed the center line and struck a 2002 Toyota Avalon being driven by John Hinderscheid, 45, of Albert Lee. Hinderscheid's vehicle came to rest in a ditch. 
Harvey's vehicle flipped on its top in the middle of the highway and was then struck by a 1999 international semi driven by 62-year-old Dennis Stone King of Northwood. Both Hinderscheid and Harvey's passenger, Phelan Fosnaught, died at the scene. Harvey was transported by ambulance to Mercy One Iowa Medical Center. Stone King was not injured. The toxicology report alleged Harvey had a 0.127% blood alcohol content at the time of the collision. Kensett Fire Department, Iowa Department of Transportation Motor Vehicle Enforcement, Worth County Sheriff's Office, Northwood Fire and Rescue, Cerro Gordo Sheriff's Office, and Mason City Fire and Ambulance all assisted at the scene. Our next article from Lead Digital Consent Center, um, which does not appear to want to load, so I will apologize for that. And we will move on then to the next article entitled Clear Lake Homeowners Insurance Rates May Drop. Matthew Razab of the Globe Gazette. Homeowners in Clear Lake may see their insurance rates go down after a review by the Insurance Services Office improved the city's safety score. Clear Lake Fire Department Chief Doug Myers told the city council on Monday the city's ISO score had improved from four to three. The score reflects the community's ability to respond to a number of emergencies, particularly fires. Meyer said 10% of the score is a result of the effectiveness of the Emergency Communications Center. 50% is in regard to the fire department and 40% reflects the efficiency of the water system. He said insurance providers use the ISO score as a reference when setting rates. Quote, depending on the company people uh, have their insurance through, they may have a stable price or up to a 5% reduction in their home insurance, Meyer said. Meyer said other factors can influence the ISO score, things such as training standards, response time, the number of emergency response staff, along with the distribution and maintenance of hydrants can all factor in. City ordinances like burn bans or site reviews for new construction also can make a difference. Clear Lake Communications Center scored 9.4 while the statewide average is 6.6. The CLFD came in at 29.54 compared with the statewide average of 18.6. The water supply average of 32.38 was much above the state average of 16.98. Meyer said Clear Lake is now one of 41 Iowa cities with a ranking of class three or better. A total of 22 towns have a class two designation and just two Iowa cities are considered class one. Myers told the council the reviews happen about every five years, with the last taking place in December 2017. Clear Lake City Administrator Scott Flory commended the council on its forward thinking. Over the years, the council has invested so heavily into that, so I think it's important for Myers to be able to tell the council about this positive report because over the years, you have invested millions and millions and millions upon millions into these things, Flory said. Council member Bennett Smith also praised local emergency responders and the council. Quote, I really appreciate the volunteer hours you guys make and your team, he said. To boil it down, by making all of these investments, we're saving homeowners money on their insurance. Mason City Fire Chief Eric Bollinger said Mason City is currently at a Class 3 level as well. The last review was in 2017, and he hopes a review sometime this year will move the city to a Class 2 ranking. Our next article um, from Barb Ix, 
Entitled Makokota Murders, 9-11 Call Reveals New Information About Mourning Four Were Killed. The lone 9-11 call that was made on the morning of a triple homicide at Makokota Cave State Park came from the mother of the man police say was the killer. As the sun rose on the popular park in Jackson County, Iowa on July 22nd, two gunshots rang out. A little boy screamed and ran for help. His parents were shot. He said, there was blood. A nearby camper took the boy by the hand, hurried toward the campground entrance, and called 911. 911, apologize. The contents of that call reveal more about what happened at the park than what investigators have been willing to disclose over the past six months, despite having concluded the case. Cecilia Sherwin struggled with the pronunciation of Makokota. After several attempts at describing her location, it clicked for the Jackson County 911 dispatcher. She was talking about Makokota Caves. Shooting, shooting, Sherwin said. We heard it this morning, and this kid's screaming. He said his parents were shot, and there's blood. The 911 call obtained by the Quad City Dispatch Argus through an open records request to Jackson County last for 23 minutes. The dispatcher was heard asking questions of Sherwin and trying to call law enforcement. As he called the park ranger and the phone continued to ring, the dispatcher said, come on just before the ranger's phone went to voicemail. The connection between the dispatcher and Sherman was briefly lost at one point, but she called back. The dispatcher again put her on hold as he tried to contact help. Nearly 10 minutes after her initial call, the dispatcher asked more questions, including where she was in the park exactly. At the entrance with the little boy, she replied, he was screaming in the tent, we heard the shots. The dispatcher had questions for the boy, too, so Sherwin handed him her phone. Who am I talking to? The dispatcher asked. Me, the boy replied. Then came some detail. The boy's name was Arlo. He was nine years old. He was camping in a tent with his mom, his sister, and his dad. I woke up and there was someone, like someone in, like black clothes, and they had a weapon and my sister was screaming, Arlo said. The dispatcher asked where his dad was. The boy paused and then replied, I think they were hurt. He repeated to the dispatcher that the man had a small gun and was wearing black clothes. He then handed the phone back to Sherwin. A few seconds later, she could be heard asking the boy, honey, are you okay? What's wrong? The dispatcher assured them help was coming. A trooper and park ranger aren't too far away, he said. An ambulance was standing by at the park visitors center. After 23 minutes, the 911 call concluded with the arrival of a park ranger. Asked last week why she took the boy to the entrance of the park to call 911, Sherwin said, we were running to safety, thinking someone in black was going to shoot us. Inside a tent near the entrance to the upper campground at Makokota Cave State Park, police found the bodies of Sarah and Tyler Schmidt, both 42, and their daughter, six-year-old Lula. Two weeks later, the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation, DCI, publicly disclosed the causes of the Schmidt's deaths. Tyler was shot and stabbed. Sarah was stabbed. Lula was shot and strangled. Arlo was the only member of the family from Cedar Falls to escape injury. Anthony Sherwin, 23, had been traveling and camping with his parents, Cecilia and Joe. He was in his own tent. The campground had a total of about a dozen campers, Cecilia Sherwin had told the 911 dispatcher. Anthony Sherwin's body was found near the campground a short distance away, but still inside the park, according to an investigator's remarks at a news conference on the day of the killings. 
In addition to revealing the causes of death on August 4th, the Iowa DCI declared that Sherwin had been the killer. Quote, all evidence collected to this point substantiates Sherwin was the perpetrator of the homicides and acted alone. His parents don't believe it. Neither his character nor the bit of evidence shared with them proves he did it, they said. Cecilia Sherwin said her son sustained two gunshot wounds. She thinks the first would have been debilitating and wonders how he managed to shoot himself again. Police have declined to answer any questions and have not publicly released any additional information since August 4th. The list of unanswered questions is long, but one in particular bothers Cecilia Sherwin because it seems simple to answer. Was the gun police say was used by her son to commit suicide the same gun that was used in the shootings of Tyler and Lula Schmidt? She and her husband specifically asked one of their lead investigators whether a ballistics match was made. They didn't get an answer, she said. The Quad City Times Dispatch Argus also filed requests for public records under Iowa Open Records Law and the Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA. The request sought incident reports, investigative documents, crime scene summaries, and autopsy reports. The records you seek are not public, replied Debbie McClung, Strategic Communications Bureau Chief, Officer of the Commissioner, Iowa Department of Public Safety. We can make immediate facts and circumstances of this case, which are contained in the press release links, which I provided for you. McClung was asked in an email on January 11th whether the gun used in the suicide matched the one used in the slayings. She did not respond. The Sherwin's request for information also have either been denied or ignored, Cecilia Sherwin said. She was able to independently obtain her son's autopsy report, she said, but it only added to her confusion. She knew Anthony was wearing green shorts because she had given them to him the day before the shooting as she handed out the last of the clean clothes from the family's camping trip. The autopsy listed the clothing Anthony was wearing, which included the green shorts. To the Sherwins, the clothing distinction is important because Arlo had been insistent the person who killed his family was wearing black. The reason we want the final report is that we want an independent review of what they say had happened because we believe Anthony was murdered and did not commit that crime, Cecilia Sherwin said. The people who likely knew Anthony best, his parents, say he wasn't capable of killing and he had no connection whatsoever to the Schmitz. Why would he violently attack them at sunrise? We were told there was no motive and it was random, she said. Investigative matters aren't the only details that remain under wraps. Police won't even tell the Sherwins where in the park their son's body was found. Cecilia Sherwin said, Why can't we know where our son's last moments on Earth were so we can put a small cross and flowers there, she asked. Arlo Schmidt is being raised by extended family, according to reports from his hometown. Cecilia Sherwin regularly thinks of the boy, she said. From there, uh, we will move on to uh, an article here. Uh, House lawmakers again seek to ban gay panic defense in Iowa. Tom Barton of the Gazette Des Moines Bureau from Des Moines. Iowa House lawmakers for a third time have moved forward legislation that would prevent a defendant from using a victim's sexual orientation or gender identity as a mitigating factor if charged with a violent crime or assault. Legal strategy asks a jury to find that a victim's sexual orientation or gender identity expression is to blame for a defendant's violent reaction, including murder. The so-called gay panic defense has been used successfully in other states. Keenan Crow of One Iowa told a subcommittee 
that voted unanimously Wednesday to move the bill to the, ho- to the full House Judiciary Committee. Subcommittee member and freshman representative Sammy Sheets, Democrat of Cedar Rapids, said he was shocked to learn such a defense could be used in legal proceedings and voted to advance the bill. Perpetrators who use the legal strategy claim a defense of diminished capacity. They argue that learning another person's sexual orientation or gender identity in a nonviolent sexual advance or come on from a LGBTQ plus person led to a loss of self-control and the subsequent assault. Quote, what this bill aims to do is not excuse these assaults or murders simply because their victim is a LGBTQ person, Crow told the subcommittee of House lawmakers. Damian Thompson, director of public policy and communications for Iowa Safe Schools, cited the 2016 killing of Kadari Johnson, a gender-fluid Burlington teenager who was shot twice, his head covered by a plastic bag and another shoved down his throat. Thompson's body doused with bleach by a man who intended to have sex with a 16-year-old, who often presented as female and was dressed in women's clothing on the night of his death. The fact that the panic defense is even legal in the code is a bit of an insult to the LGBTQ community here in Iowa, Thompson said, and it kind of dishonors the memory of students like Kadari Johnson. The legislation was approved unanimously by the House in 2020, but the legislature suspended its session a week later because of the coronavirus pandemic. Lawmakers again unanimously approved the bill in 2021, but it was never taken up by the Senate. Quote, I find the use of this defense to be preposterous and heinous, said Representative Bobby Kaufman, Republican of Wilton, who again is managing the bill. It does not pass the common sense test. This shouldn't be a defense for anyone. Kaufman said he expects the bill will again pass the House unanimously, but said he could not speak for why senators did not consider the bill in previous sessions. I'm just hopeful that our persistence pays off, he told reporters. I stand ready to answer any questions that may be needed to get this down to the governor's desk. Kaufman added he's found quite a bit of support for the bill in the Senate and is optimistic it will be signed into law this year. Senate Judiciary Chairman Brad Zahn, Republican of Urbandale and Senate Republican leadership, did not immediately respond Wednesday afternoon to a request for comment on the bill. The move, though, comes at the same time Republicans are pushing forward legislation that would prohibit teaching about gender identity and sexual orientation in certain grades and would prohibit schools from taking steps from affirming or recognizing a student's preferred gender identity in school without written consent from their parents. This bill and those bills couldn't possibly be more diametrically different, Kaufman said, responding to a reporter's question. So I am dealing with each bill in a vacuum, and this bill is simply the right thing to do. From there, we'll move on very briefly. Uh, Celebrity bow hunting couple sentenced for conspiring to illegally obtain wildlife in Nebraska from Lori Pilger of the Lincoln Journal Star. A celebrity bow hunting couple have been sentenced in federal court in Omaha for conspiring to violate the Lacey Act, which prohibits the trafficking of wildlife. The case against Josh Bomar, 32, and Sarah Bomar, 33, and Bomar Bow Hunting, LLC of Ankeny, Iowa, was related to the largest known case of poaching in Nebraska. The Bomars pleaded guilty October 19th in the U.S. District Court of Nebraska to a misdemeanor conspiracy charge in exchange for other more serious charges, mostly involving allegations of illegally baited hunting sites, were dropped.
On Thursday, United States Magistrate Judge Michael D. Nelson sentenced them each to three years of probation and 40 hours of community service. Nelson also ordered the Bomars to pay a $75,000 fine, $25,000 each for each of the Bomars and the business, a $44,000 money judgment in lieu of forfeiting certain property, and $13,000 restitution. As part of probation, the Bomars are banned from hunting or engaging in any activities associated with hunting within Nebraska during the period of probation. In a press release, United States Attorney Stephen Russell said beginning in September 2015 and continuing through November 2017, the Bomars conducted about five hunts per year at Hidden Hill Outfitters, commercial big game guiding and outfitting business near Broken Bow. Now 30 minutes past uh, the hour, so we will go ahead and we will begin our obituaries. From Garner, Thomas Andrew Duriger, 67, of Garner, passed away peacefully on January 16th with his wife of 46 years by his side after battling metastatic, metastatic melanoma since November 2022. A private family memorial will be held at a time yet to be determined. Tom was born on May 21st, 1955, to Bob and Jean Duriger. After graduating high school, he joined his father in starting Duriger Trucking. Tom married Kathy Lawrence on January 2nd, 1977. And in 1988, after selling Duriger Trucking, Tom moved his family to Garner. Tom was a member of the Republican Party of Hancock County and volunteered for candidates across northern Iowa. Tom was a regular attendee of the Masonic Jewish Fellowship in Northwood. Tom is survived by his wife, Kathy, sister Linda Corwin, brother Dave Duriger, sons Sean and Sam, daughter Michelle Morrison, as well as seven grandchildren. He was preceded in death by his parents and his brother, Paul. You can find more information at www.cattledofuneralhome.com. Richard E. Roof died January 16 at the age of 71. He will be missed by his family and friends and leaves behind his mother, Carlene, longtime partner, Judy, daughters, Christina and Betsy, sister, Jan, brothers, Ron and Rob. Rich was preceded in death by his father, Roe, and sister-in-law, Patty. Visitation will be held Saturday, January 21st at Major Erickson Funeral Home from 1 to 3 p.m. Mary A., formerly Edgar Mattison, 74, of Clear Lake, died Friday, January 13th, at Mercy One North Iowa Hospice after several months of declining health. Funeral service will be held at 11 a.m. Friday, January 20th, at the Bethel United Methodist Church, 503 East South Street in Manly, with the pastor Corey Allard officiating. A graveside service will be held at 1.30 p.m. on Friday at the Clear Lake Cemetery, in Clear Lake. Visitation will be from 5 to 7.30 p.m. Thursday, January 19th at Ward Van Slyke Colonial Chapel, 310 First Avenue, North Clear Lake. Visitation will continue one hour prior to the service at the church. Ward Van Slyke Colonial Chapel, 310 First Avenue, North Clear Lake. Uh, phone number 641-357-2193. Riley Alexander Sharper met Jesus on January 13th, 2023, at the age of 28. He was born to Kevin and Jill Sharper on February 5th, 1994, in Mason City. Riley was an incredible son, brother, husband, father, and friend. He treasured his wife, daughter, and family more than anything in this world. 
He had an impressive baseball card collection that he took extreme pride in. Riley enjoyed spending his summers at Principal Park and Target Field, accumulating a numerous amount of baseball card autographs. He was a devout Green Bay Packer and Minnesota Twins fan. He could rattle off any player, team, or statistic in the MLB and NFL with ease. Riley loved attending musicals and shows at the Des Moines Civic Center with his wife, Caitlin. These shows were their monthly date nights and something they enjoyed immensely together. Riley had an incredible voice and a gift of harmonizing with any song. He used his gifts to lead worship at his church. He could light up any dance floor with his both incredible and hilarious dance moves. Riley loved traveling from a very young age with his family. He was able to visit all 50 states and numerous national parks. Riley shared incredible traveling experiences with his wife and shared his love of traveling with her, including hiking the infamous Angels Landing in Zion National Park in 2020. Riley graduated from Forest City High School in 2012. He participated in countless activities, including band, choir, musicals, and of course, football. He then went on to play center at Dort College for the next four years. There he touched the lives of all of his teammates and coaches with his tenacity, grit, and love for the game of football. Riley graduated from Dort College in 2016 with a BSN of Science and Nursing. After graduation, he received his first RN job in the Sheldon, Iowa Emergency Department, where he worked for a year. Riley and Caitlin got married on July 1st, 2017 on the lake in Emmonsburg, Iowa. They then started their lives together in the Des Moines Metro. Riley began his job in the emergency department as an ER trauma nurse at Methodist Hospital in downtown Des Moines. While working full-time, he began his master's to become a family nurse practitioner. He accomplished this goal while working full-time and managing countless clinical hours. Riley crushed every single goal he set in life. He graduated from Clarkson College with a master's, becoming a family nurse practitioner in 2020. He then began his next job at the Iowa Clinic in Urology. Riley's smile and presence lit up every space he was in. He endlessly touched the lives of so many, including his church family, patients, co-workers, teammates, friends, family, and anyone who ever came across his bright light. Lastly, Riley's love for his daughter, Chloe, was unmatchable. He was such an incredible dad. He loved her more than life itself, and we know that Chloe will feel his love and see his light forever. He will be missed by his wife, Caitlin, daughter, Chloe, parents, Kevin and Jill Sharper, brother, Russell, Carrie Sharper, and Haley Bragg, Riley was preceded in death by his paternal grandparents, Bill and Lucille Sharper, maternal grandfather, Jack Prestholt, Uncle Dave Olson, and Caitlin's maternal grandparents, Don and Leona Lanus. We know that Riley is with Jesus, and that is our comfort right now. We know that Riley's life reflected the love of Christ in every facet. Our prayers over our tragic circumstance is that people will only see Jesus, and that he will get the glory for all that lives, all the lives that Riley touched, on his time here on earth. He loved big, so big. Memorial service for Riley will be held at 11 a.m. on Saturday, January 21st at Lutheran Church of Hope in West Des Moines. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. on Friday, January 20th at Caldwell Parish Funeral Home and Crematory, Macaulay Chapel in Adel. Please do not feel compelled to wear black. We want to fill the space with color to continue to shine Riley's light for Jesus. An ornament will be held at a later date at Clear Lake Municipal Cemetery. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed uh, to Chloe's College Fund. It is our family's goal to keep his memory alive 
Please feel free to share any stories or memories you have to RileySharper63 at gmail.com. With that, we'll go ahead and we will move on to sports. And we'll begin here uh, with today in sports. Uh, I apologize, that was today in sports history. So if we have time, I'll come back to that. So I'll go to some high school news. High school roundup. Osage wrestler Nick Fox breaks school record. Newman Catholic still in tight race for the TIC title. The Charles City boys basketball team at Charles City picked up a blowout victory over Questwood Tuesday night. The comments outscored the cadets 22-6 in the fourth quarter to seal their win. Chase Lowe had 20 points and Cam Mestis 19, while Keenan Wiley's 12 points gave the comments three players in double figures. Having a real balanced scoring attack makes us a tough guard, Charles City head coach Ben Klapperich said. I thought that our guys did a great job of keeping their composure throughout the entire game. It was great to see Chase Lowe get off to a good start. He's been shooting the ball real well at practice, but it was nice to see that translate into a game. Janesville 60 over Riceville 45. The Wildcats dropped to 2-13 on the season with a loss to Janesville. Janesville shot nearly 45% from the floor on the evening. North Butler 66 over Central Springs 54. Central Springs was overwhelmed by North Butler senior Owen Almelian, who scored 27 points. Almelian shot 8 of 11 from beyond the arc Tuesday night in Manly. North Union 69 over Forest City 53. Forest City's uh, led North Union by two points at halftime, but things quickly spiraled out of control. The Warriors outscored the Indians 43-25 in the second half. Garner Hayfield Ventura 62 over West Hancock 43. Garner Hayfield Ventura moved to 10-3 on the season with its win over West Hancock. Cardinals forced the Eagles to turn the ball over 16 times. Lake Mills over Bishop Garrigan 74-47. Lake Mills maintained its perfect record with a win against Bishop Garrigan. Junior Lance Halming was the Bulldogs' leading score with 26 points. Newman Catholic 60 over Nashua Plainfield 53. Newman Catholic remains firmly in the race for a top of Iowa conference title with its win over Nashua Plainfield. The 8-1 Knights trail the 9-1 West Fork Warhawks in the league standings. Osage over St. Ansgar 73-63. Osage advanced to 12-2 on the season with a road win over St. Ansgar Tuesday. The Green Devils are currently in third place in the top of Iowa conference standings. Madden Uhlenhop led the Green Devils with 28 points, while Max Knudsen and Quinn Street each had 20. The Saints got 21 points and 9 rebounds from Hunter Hillman. Huskies down Riverhawks, 9th-ranked Des Moines Hoover held Mason City to just 30% shooting from the field as the Huskies topped the Riverhawks 66-39 Tuesday in Iowa Alliance Conference boys basketball action. Mason City made just 13 of 43 attempts from the field, including just 7 of 27 from inside the three-point line. Additionally, the Riverhawks were only 7 of 14 from the free-throw line. Shooting percentage continued to plague us tonight, Riverhawk head coach Nick Trask said. We have been spending much of our practice in shooting drills and pressure situations for free throws, so hopefully that will turn around for us. Davian Maxwell led Mason City with 14 points. Cale Hobart had eight, while Jess Cornick finished with seven. High school girls basketball. 
Crestwood, 57, over Charles City, 24. Charles City struggled on offense during its road loss to the Crestwood Cadets. Charles City only scored its double figures in one quarter. Riceville over Janesville, 80-22. Number 13, Riceville, down 1-15 Janesville in a home game that featured a running clock for much of the second half. Janesville posted single-digit point totals in all four quarters. Central Springs over North Butler, 46-18. Central Springs celebrated senior night with a blowout victory over North Butler. The Panthers held the Bearcats scoreless in the first quarter. At the end of the third period, North Butler had only put four points on the scoreboard. North Union, 62 over Forest City, 48. Number 11, North Union advanced to 11-2 with a win at Forest City High School. The Indians trailed the Warriors by one point at the end of the first quarter, but Forest City faltered in the second period, putting up just four points. Mason City, 65 over Des Moines Hoover, 20. The Riverhawks didn't have their best shooting night, but the Riverhawks overcame their shooting deficiencies to win their fourth straight game with a 65-20 win over Des Moines Hoover and Iowa Lions conference action. Mason City jumped out to a 15-2 lead and led 55-10 after three quarters. Reggie Spots led the Riverhawks with 18 points and eight steals. Zariah Falls had 14 points and Abby Latham chipped in 10. We shot poorly from the field and that affected our energy, Mason City head coach Kurt Clausen said, but our pressure defense continued to lead the way. Zariah and Abby had great games off the bench and everyone played at least seven minutes. The Riverhawks improved to 6-5 overall, and they are 4-0 in the IAC North Division, leading Fort Dodge by a game in the league standings. Mason City is at Waterloo East on Friday. West Hancock, 41 over Garner Hayfield Ventura, 25. Garner Hayfield Ventura posted single-digit point totals in all four quarters of its road game against West Hancock. The Cardinals shot 9-41 from the field, and their leading scorer, Rebecca Heidlich, put up seven points. Bishop Garrigan, 78, over Lake Mills, 29. Lake Mills dropped to 5-9 on the season with a defeat at the hands of one loss and top-ranked Bishop Garrigan. The Bulldogs' leading scorer, Bryn Rognus, who put up six points on three of seven shooting. Newman Catholic, 47, over Nashua Plainfield, 26. Newman Catholic is now one game closer to a 500 record this season. With their win over the Huskies, the Knights are now 6-7. West Fork over Northwood Kensett, 61-26. Number nine, West Fork breezed past Northwood Kensett on the road Tuesday. The Vikings dropped to 6-6, and the Warhawks advanced to 13-0. Osage, 49 over St. Ansgar, 38. Number nine, Osage passed a road test with a win over St. Ansgar. Senior Claudia Aschenbrenner scored 16 points for the Green Devils on 8 of 20 shooting. High school boys bowling, Independence, 2,509 to Charles City, 2,366. The Independence Mustangs downed the Charles City Comets at Lucky 10 Lanes in Independence. The Comets were led by sophomore Keaton Ross, who knocked down 359 pins on the day. North Fayette Valley, 2565 over Forest City, 2175. Forest City dropped to 0-3 on the season, Tuesday at Lilac Lanes in West Union. North Fayette Valley senior Mason Brown Gonnerman posted a 235 score in one game, on his way to a 439-pin total. High school girls bowling, Independence 23-26 over Charles City 21-49. The Independence girls bowling team picked up a win at Lucky 10 Lanes despite the solid performance of Charles City's Claire Gherkin. The junior knocked down 332 pins on the day. 
North Fayette Valley, 2197 over Forest City, 2048. Forest City led for the first time this season Tuesday. The Indians lost to the North Fayette Valley Tiger Hawks at Lilac Lanes in West Union. High school boys wrestling, Osage 39 over Questwood 30. Osage 152-pounder Tucker Stengel returned to the mat and won his match against Aiden Easley via Fall Tuesday. Stengel had missed some bouts with a knee injury. Senior Nick Fox picked up his 180th career victory to become Osage's all-time wins leader. Quad meet scores, Hampton, Dumont, Cal, Forest City, Garner Hayfield, Ventura, Iowa Falls, Alden, HDC 63, Forest City 18, HDC 48 over GHV 30, Forest City over Iowa Falls, Alden 59-22, GHV over Iowa Falls, Alden 45-21. In boys swimming, Riverhawks split. The Mason City boys swimming team split a pair of duels Tuesday, beating Des Moines Hoover 83-8 and falling to Des Moines Lincoln 72-22. Anders Bookmeyer and Daniel Schwartz each earned victories. Bookmeyer won the 500 free while Schwartz took home the win in the 100 breaststroke. Mason Labby added a runner-up finish in the 100 backstroke for the Riverhawks. Mason City is next in action Saturday at the Iowa Alliance Conference Meet in Fort Dodge. The competition begins at 11 a.m. Uh, this next article um, it's taking just a minute to load about Chris Street. I do apologize. The article on Chris Street is having trouble loading. So I'll go ahead and move to tennis. In the Australian Open, Coco Golf continues her quest for a first Grand Slam title when she plays her third-round match at the Australian Open. The 18-year-old from Florida takes on another American, Bernarda Perra. Goff reached her first major final at last year's French Open before losing to Iga Swiatek. Goff, who won the WTA warm-up event in Auckland, has yet to drop a set at Melbourne Park this year. She's trying to become the youngest winner at the Australian Open since Martina Hingis won the first of three straight titles in 1997 at age 16. The top-seeded Swiatak and number three Jessica Pagula will look to move a step nearer to a semifinal showdown by winning matches on Friday. Swiatak plays Cristina Buxa, a Spanish qualifier, while Pagula meets Marta Kostyuk of Ukraine, the number three-seeded man, Stefanos Tsitsipas faces Talon Grigspor, while Daniil Medvedev, the 2021 U.S. Open champion and runner-up in Melbourne, the past two years placed 29th-seeded Sebastian Korda of the U.S. Forecast for Friday will be uh, mostly sunny, a high of 75 degrees in Australia. We'll go ahead and move to another article, uh, this about Damar Hamlin. As the Buffalo Bills prepare to play the Cincinnati Bengals on Sunday in the AFC Playoffs Divisional Round, Bills head coach Sean McDermott has told reporters that safety DeMar Hamlin is at the team facility almost daily. Quote, it's limited just overall, but he comes in and it really just started really today or yesterday. Just trying to get back to a little bit of a routine, just getting himself acclimated again, taking it one baby step at a time, said McDermott on Wednesday as he spoke about Hamlin. Sunday's Bills-Bengals reunion will come 20 days after Hamlin, a defensive player in his second NFL season, suffered a cardiac arrest and fell to the ground in front of a shocked stadium following a tackle. 
That night, players were in tears as they watched a medical team resuscitate the 24-year-old before an ambulance carried him off the field in critical condition. The remainder of the Bills-Bengals game was canceled as Hamlin remained hospitalized, and NFL teams and fans across the league paid tribute to the football player with T-shirts, signs, jersey patches, and on-field prayers. Hamlin was discharged last week after a hospital stay and watched nationwide that involved him being sedated and put on a ventilator. McDermott said Hamlin isn't attending team meetings at this stage, but that the 24-year-old is dipping his toe back in here and getting on the road or just getting back to himself. Hamlin's return to the team has been a welcome presence since, says offensive lineman Dion Dawkins. Quote, his appearance, like walking around here, it's a positive thing, and to see three, Hamlin wears the number three on his jersey, just smile and just wave and just put his hearts up and keep it pushing. It's a positive energy bubble that's just floating around the facility, said Dawkins. Sorry, it's uh, quarterback Josh Allen agreed that Hamlin's presence has been able to ease the emotional strain on the players, with guys being able to see a little bit of DeMar, and I know Coach said he's been in the building, guys being able to see him and talk with him. I think that kind of alleviates most of that, said Allen. Since Hamlin's injury, the Bills went on to finish second in the AFC behind the Kansas City Chiefs before narrowly beating the Miami Dolphins 34-31 in the wildcard playoff round, setting themselves up for a rematch with the Bengals in the divisional playoff. When Bengals' quarterback Joe Burrow was asked about facing the Bills again, he said, it's just another game, another playoff game. Obviously what happened, that's always in the back of everybody's minds, but now it's win or go home. I think that's what everybody's mostly focused on. The Bills-Bengals game kicks off. Kickoff is scheduled for 3 p.m. Friday on Sunday. With that, we'll go ahead and close today's reading with a look at the weather. In Mason City today, mainly cloudy uh, with snow showers around this morning, high around 30 degrees. Winds northwest at 15 to 25 miles an hour. Chance of snow at 90%. Snow accumulations less than one inch. High wind gust possible. Tonight, cloudy, low around 20 degrees, winds northwest at 15 to 25 miles an hour, and tomorrow, cloudy early with partial sunshine expected late, high of 22 degrees, winds west to northwest at 10 to 20 miles an hour. Uh, with that, we'll go ahead and close for the day. Uh, today, January the 19th of the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette. Again, my name is Ben Stein, and I will be again next week. Thank you for listening.
in the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. At high doses, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like diclofenac, ibuprofen, or naproxen may increase the risk of kidney problems. The study that revealed this used de-identified medical records of more than 750,000 active-duty U.S. Army soldiers. Consequently, these were active, young, and middle-aged adults. During the time of the study, from 2011 through 2014, nearly 18% of these soldiers got a prescription for one to seven doses of an NSAID pain reliever in a month. Another 16% were prescribed more than seven doses in a month. Fewer than 1% of these people were subsequently diagnosed with acute or chronic kidney disease. Nevertheless, the rate of kidney trouble was about 20% higher among people who had received high-dose NSAIDs than among those who had taken none. The authors described the increased risk as modest but statistically significant. Another class of drugs that can lead to kidney injury is proton pump inhibitors. A data mining initiative of the FDA's Adverse Event Reporting System analyzed kidney-related side effects among 43,000 people who took a drug such as esomeprazole, lansoprazole, or omeprazole. Approximately 8,000 people taking a histamine 2 blocker such as ranitidine or famotidine served as controls since they take these drugs for similar symptoms. The researchers found that 5.6% of people on PPIs alone had a kidney-related side effect, while only 0.7% of those on H2 blockers did. Chronic kidney disease was 28 times more likely, and acute kidney injury was four times more likely among people taking PPIs. While this analysis shows association, not causation, There are previous studies linking PPIs and kidney damage. There's growing concern about a mysterious infectious disease that has been spreading among the wild deer population for decades. Scientists call it CWD, or chronic wasting disease. Hunters refer to this condition as zombie deer disease. It can also affect elk and moose. The CDC reports that this infectious disease has spread to wildlife in 24 states and two Canadian provinces. CWD was first detected in Colorado among captive deer in the 1960s and in the wild deer population in the 1980s. It's now affecting deer in the Midwest, Southwest, and some parts of the East Coast. The disease appears to be caused by a prion infection reminiscent of mad cow disease. An infectious disease expert at the University of Minnesota has warned that hunters who eat contaminated deer meat may eventually develop the human equivalent of chronic wasting disease. Shoulder replacement surgery is becoming increasingly common. Now researchers writing in the BMJ say that patients should be warned that the risks are higher than originally thought. The investigators reviewed hospital and mortality records in the UK, When men between 50 and 59 have this type of shoulder surgery, one in four will need further surgery on that shoulder within five years. In addition, older people who underwent this kind of surgical procedure experienced high rates of serious adverse events. One in nine older women and one in five older men had an infection, major blood clot, heart attack or stroke, or died within three months. The authors of the study encouraged their colleagues to counsel patients about the risks as well as the benefits of this kind of surgery. Drug interactions are a serious hazard in hospitals and the community. 
If patients receive prescriptions for incompatible medications, they can experience severe side effects that may even be life-threatening. Electronic medical records are intended to warn prescribers and pharmacists about potentially dangerous interactions, but many do so indiscriminately. The result is something called alert fatigue. If clinicians receive too many warnings, they may not pay attention to the really important ones. A team at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital reviewed their alert system. They removed unnecessary alerts and provided additional information to the most important ones. After they finished, they tracked clinicians' reactions. Alert overrides dropped by 40%. One important change linked alerts to the patient's laboratory data, making them much more targeted. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week.